You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Adrian Frost and Laura Geiser. This month, we're reading Beyond Behaviors by Dr. Mona Delahook. Let's get into it. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Laura. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club podcast, Spooky Edition. Spooky. (laughs) Today we're covering the final chapter of our book, Beyond Behaviors, by Dr. Mona Delahook. That's chapter nine. But first, we're going to do some spooky stuff. I think what we have lined up are a few ghost stories. Yes. And Halloween this or that. Okay, Laura, you open it up with your ghost story and then I'll tell mine. Okay. I mean, my ghost story isn't super spooky. So if, listen, if you're really scared of ghosts, fast forward, right? Just skip the intro. But I don't have like a real haunting story. I want to tell you about the house I grew up in. I grew up in a very old house in Fresno and lots and lots of families had lived there before us. And my sister and I had the bedrooms on the top floor and it was a really steep roof. So on the sides of my sister's room, like on both sides, mm-hmm. there were those like attic crawl spaces. Mm. So she had these like little tiny doors off of her room where you would have to crouch down to crawl into the space. Oh, yeah. So in high school, when I lived in that room, I never had any experiences. That's why I've said in the past, I'm not open to ghost experiences. But in high school, my friends and I were all talking about ghosts because one of my friends had a haunted house. And my sister was like, oh, my room's haunted. And we were like, what are you talking about? She's like, yeah, I don't know. It's just like, sometimes I'll be sitting on my bed and I'm talking to someone and I just suddenly snap to and realize, like, who am I talking to? <laughs> My friend whose house was haunted said the exact same thing. She had, like, kind of a like a young girl ghost in her room. And she was like, that's what happens to me all the time. I just feel this presence, like, and I'll start communicating with someone. And I realize that no one's there. And I'm talking to someone who... It's not there physically. Oh, I love goosebumps. That's so spooky. She also said she could feel her, like she would feel, I think, a coldness against like one side of her in bed sometimes and stuff like that. But anyway, the other thing my sister said was that sometimes she'd be like leaning against the wall behind her bed where the crawl space was and she would hear as if someone was behind her throwing coins at the wall. And so she'd feel it hitting. And she said it sounded like pennies hitting and dropping to the ground. So I just was like, oh, my kooky little sister thinks her room's haunted. So then fast forward, we're all away at school. Everyone's moved out. My parents decide to totally remodel their house. And one day this guy stops by while it's all being remodeled. And he tells my mom, I grew up here. You know, I I lived here when I was in high school and he's like my mom's age. He was like, you know, my dad and I remodeled that whole part. Like we added on the family room. And he was like, do you mind if I just look around, like just kind of look at what you guys are doing and stuff? And my mom was like, "Okay, I'm really busy, but go ahead. So she just like lets this guy wander and she finds him in our backyard and he's like sitting in her rose garden. I think he might have been crying because we had left like his dad's tool shed completely Like my dad had his tools in there, but all his dad's tools and stuff and like horseshoes were all still hanging on the wall. We'd never touched it. So he was like, it was so crazy to walk into my dad's 
tool room and see all his stuff still in the garage. So my mom then like, even though she was busy, felt bad, was like, let's walk through the house together. You know, like she took him on a little tour. So he like explained who lived in all the rooms, blah, blah, blah. Then he gets to my sister's room and he goes, this was my room. Is it still haunted? And my mom is just like, (laughs) my mom's like, what? So she tells me this story and I'm like, Yes, mom, it is. <laughs> Julie has always said it's haunted. So it was like confirmed by an outside source that that room is haunted in that house. Wow. I wish he would have shared what happened. Oh my God. Oh, I know. I know. What if it was the same stuff or something spookier? You're pretty lucky it wasn't your room, Laura. You might be different. I did live, I lived in that room. But I lived in there with my sister. We shared it for a while when my brothers still lived at home. So maybe when there's two people, you don't get haunted as much. Ooh, spooky ooky. That was a good one. I was, if you notice, Laura, I was looking over my shoulder because I was feeling a little scary. I was like, oh, (laughs) was that a noise over there? What's happening? I would imagine your townhome is too new to have a haunting, right? But you know what? Okay. For all the listeners out there, um, Laura and I share a favorite spooky podcast called Snap Judgment Presents Spooked, and you can find it wherever you listen to us. And we love it, and they're really great, produced super well, spooky stories. But from listening to some of those stories, I know that the house does not have to be old to be haunted. Sometimes it can just be the land, right? You never know. That's true. Or sometimes a spirit attaches to a person. That's true. But I've had good I've had good vibes in this house. Nothing spooky. Okay. Okay, so the story I'm gonna tell is about me and my ex-husband. So this happened probably 14 years ago. I was like young, 21. And my ex, my boyfriend at the time, right, he lived above his best friend's grandma's garage so they had like a little like studio apartment built over the garage and it was the morning I think I had spent the night we were kind of just laying in bed talking about like what are we gonna do today are we gonna get bagels whatever and his friend Robert had crashed in the room so he was also in the room sleeping on the couch kind of close to where we were and I could see him sleeping and so we're talking about it and then all of a sudden it was like all of the air got like sucked out of the room like a vacuum it was so strange and this is sometimes called the oz effect oz like wizard of oz because it's like you don't hear any birds chirping you don't hear any background noise you don't hear your computer or your air conditioner running it was just like the whole room took a breath in and then from the corner there was like a radiator in the corner we both heard like hey just like that Oh my gosh. And I like looked at him and like pulled the covers up over my head and was just like, oh, did you hear that? Oh my gosh. And he like looked at me and he was like, I heard that. I was like, oh my God, I heard that too. It was so scary. Um, And then I never really felt comfortable in that room, but that was the only thing that happened. But that was the first time I ever really heard a ghost. Oh my gosh. Very scary. That was so weird. I just saw something out of the corner of my eye. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) We're scaring ourselves over here. (laughs) I love what you did there because those are some of my favorite stories on Spooked is when there's a really fast like whisper. (laughs) 
Yeah, and that was it. But it was like it was not his friend because I could see his friend sleeping right there. And it came from a different part of the room. And the way that it like got so quiet beforehand, it was almost like whatever it was, was like gathering the energy, you know, to vocalize or whatever. Yeah. And then um, I've lived in other houses that are haunted because my family is very sensitive and my mom sees stuff and so does my sister. My aunt has like premonitions, <laughs> but I, we lived in one house where it was like ghostly activity, but there was never anything for me as overt as like hearing something. But you would hear, you would be in like one of the rooms downstairs and you would hear silverware in the kitchen. Like somebody was yeah. rummaging through the silverware drawer, but then you would walk in, nobody's there. Or I would hear knocking on the sliding glass door and like look into the backyard and there's nobody back there. Yeah. Or my mom was back there, but she was in like really far away in the other corner. One time we saw disembodied smoke <gasps> in the stairway where like my mom and I were getting ready to leave for work and we're talking and all of a sudden there was just like this curling tendril of super opaque white smoke. <laughs> and we were both looking at it. I'm like, do you see that? She's like, yeah. I'm like... So do you think there's like a fire in the wall? Oh my goodness. <laughs> She's like, uh, and we're like touching the wall and I'm like, I don't think so. And then it just dissipated. And then my sister also had a spooky, I mean, I tell the last story and then I'll let you take over. But in that same house, my sister was taking a shower and uh, she got in the bathroom. She locked the door. She got in the shower. She got out of the shower, pulled back the shower curtain and written in the condensation on the mirror, it said, I'm sorry. <laughs> and the door was locked. Like nobody came in. Yeah. It was only my mom that was, that was home beside her. And she like went running out, found my mom. My mom went in and tried to take a picture of it. But it okay. already started like fading. But. My logical brain. If the shower, okay. If your mirror fogs up and you write something in it, like if you really write something and then you don't touch it and then you take another shower. Does it appear? I don't know. She said it was dripping from it. Ooh. Like there were drips like somebody. Oh my gosh, that is so creepy. <laughs> I know. That house was like something else. I think my cousin saw the full the full ghost. It was a woman. Yeah. But... Oh my gosh. And that was a case of the house not being too old, but the land was old, you know. Anyway. Well, let's just end with my super cute haunting of my past dog Stinky. Oh, <laughs> Which stinky. I wasn't tell. <laughs> but stinky in 2022 passed away very suddenly in our house very tragically and so i think his little spirit got a little bit caught in my old apartment i tried to get him to come here when we moved but so far i, I don't know you're like you're invited come to the new house <laughs> yeah oh i was like come on like the last time i was there i was like uh, several times i was like let's go stinky oh, come on cool. like <laughs> But I told you once that I would be in bed with both my dogs, my both my other dogs. Yeah. And I could hear little footsteps in the hallway. It would just sound exactly, if you're a dachshund owner, you know the difference in your dog's walks. Like they sound, you can tell who's coming around the corner. Yeah. And probably any dog owner. So I would hear him all the time, his little footsteps in the hallway. And I just ignored it. But then one night, my fiance came in and was like, are the dogs with you? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, God, that's so weird. I just heard footsteps in the hallway. And I was like, it was stinky. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
but that's just like a cute that was a cute and very welcome haunting (laughs) oh we love it okay so now we can do some would you rathers that i found online halloween version okay laura would you rather meet a vampire or meet a werewolf okay i would rather meet a vampire because i feel like you can reason with a vampire and a werewolf is like all he's all bottom up like there's no top down he is working on instinct (laughs) (laughs) he he goes by the moon he is not like he cannot be reasoned with you can't seduce him (laughs) that's that's exactly what i was thinking like and obviously you can always end up in like a bella and uh edward situation with a vampire wow Okay, good answer. And you would go vampire also? I'd have to agree. I mean, that was my first. The minute the words came out of my mouth, I was like, duh, right? Who's going to say werewolf? Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, I have one more for you. Would you rather walk through a graveyard at midnight or spend a night in a spooky abandoned old house? Note, not haunted. It just says spooky and abandoned am i completely alone or do i have someone with me let's say you have a friend (laughs) can i run can i run through the graveyard (laughs) ah what does it say it says walk (laughs) i think if i have one friend with me i will walk through a graveyard at night at midnight or whatever it was because spending a whole night somewhere your mind just starts to go wild you know Mm -hmm. which would you rather do Probably would rather walk through the graveyard. Uh, It's kind of spooky, but in a way kind of peaceful. I would not be down for the abandoned house. No. Okay, my last question for you, Laura. This is not would you rather, but it's just kind of a question I was thinking about. How do you feel about scary movies? Do you watch them? Do you like them? I don't watch them a lot. I try to avoid them now because something happened to me when I saw The Ring originally in high school or call it and also the movie gothica something happened to me where images from those movies got locked into my brain and i would see them all the time like i lived alone in santa barbara and the scene in the ring where the girl's hand comes out of the tv mm. i would constantly think that was about to happen in my little studio apartment Scary. <laughs> and then also like there's a scene in gothica where they're driving and then like, there's like a girl in the road little girl little spooky scary ghost girls just freak me out and I can't get them out of my head if I see it so I just made this decision like I'm not doing this to myself anymore my fiance loves scary movies so he watches them and sometimes I'll watch one with him but (laughs) in general avoid what about you same I'm very I'm a wimp even Halloween Town you know the Disney classic a little spooky for me at times (laughs) 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 you know like a little jump scary like whoa gosh you know yeah And all the scary movies I can watch are ones that I watched when I was younger. When I saw The Sixth Sense, it's like only because I saw that when I was like 16 do I think I could watch it now. But you're right about the images. And I have to mention, speaking of scary little ghost girls, my daughter has been scaring me so much lately at night. (laughs) Like, I feel like I almost I did not get a good night's sleep last night because she was we've been having a lot of trouble getting her to stay in her bed. And I keep my door open so that she can just like come into my room if she needs to, you know, but I also have like a salt lamp, like Himalayan salt lamp that I use as a nightlight because 
a couple of times I would wake up in the middle of the night and like hear her kind of walking and I would walk out of my room and she's just like doing something weird, Mm -hmm. like standing at the top of the stairs. And I'm like, hey, what's the plan? So then my sister and I were like, maybe she's disoriented. So I'm like, hey, maybe she needs a light. So then I put that light on, Uh but it's kind of like a reddish orange light. So when I'm laying in my bed, I just see my open door with like red light kind of coming through the doorway. And I'm like, I don't know, that's really scary. And then sometimes if I'm sleeping, but I kind of sense her come into the room, I open my eyes and she only wears nightgowns to bed. She does not wear traditional pajamas. She likes to wear nightgowns. The spookiest sleepwear. The spookiest. I have horrible vision too, right? So I can't even really see. (laughs) I open my eyes and I will just see her like silhouetted against this red light in this nightgown, like standing in the doorway. It is so scary. Oh my gosh. At this point, just have her go to bed in your room. I don't know what to do. Or like I wake up and her face is two inches from my face and she's like, Hey, ma'am. And I'm like, like horrifying. Oh my gosh. Well, anyway, it is a spooky season, that's for sure. <laughs> if you find her crouched on top of your dresser, you got to just shut it down. Like, <laughs> oh, <don't you> <laughs> that's my scare. That's my fear always is a ghost crouched on top of the dresser. You have a spooked episode where that happens. I think there have been two or three. Okay. Okay. Anyway, thank you everyone for hanging in there with us. We hope you got a little fright. <laughs> Let us know if you have any good scary stories you want to share with us too. Of course. Stick around after a quick break. We'll be back to finish Beyond Behaviors. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast. It's a community. Go to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club to join the discussion and connect with us after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? The resources we make to support the content of the books we read are available for free on our Patreon or at the Laura G. SLP Teachers Pay Teachers store. You can find links to them in the show notes. To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to theslpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at theslpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at SLP underscore book club or on TikTok at the SLP Book Club. I want to tell you about Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum. If you're an SLP looking for more work-life balance and a fresh way to do things in your private practice, then the Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum might be just what you're looking for. Tiny Talkers groups are set up as a way to provide accessible speech and language support to young children in a small group setting. Our friend Megan Samuels, creator of Tiny Talkers, has done all the planning for you. When you sign up for the curriculum, you get a full 36-week program divided into summer, fall, winter, and spring semesters. The plans are easy to implement and adjust as needed to meet the needs of your clients. They include material checklists and parent handouts for each session. And the best part is, Megan designed each week so that all the materials you'll need can fit into one sensory bin. So once you get your group set up, you're done. In the years that follow, you'll pull out that bin and go. No planning, no stress, just fun. If you want to learn more about Tiny Talkers, go to tinytalkersgroupcurriculum.com to check it out. Make sure to use our code BOOKCLUB10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. We love Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum, and we know you'll love it too. All 
right, so let's get into chapter nine. This chapter is called Hope for the Future and Plenty to Do Now. So Dr. Delahook starts this chapter with an imaginary scenario where a little three-year-old Lucia is taken to the pediatrician and the doctor notices that she's very anxious and the family comes back for a follow-up appointment. And then at that follow-up, the parents are reassured that behavioral challenges actually just give us a lot of information about how to interact with a child and tailor the environment to fit her needs. And then the next week, they're basically told by the doctor about the polyvagal theory and how Lucia's autonomic nervous system tends to detect threat when there is none. And then the doctor tells them that discovering this early means we can better support her physical and emotional development. So they schedule an appointment at an OT gym and they just tell Lucia it's a play date. And the OT tells the parents that children can learn to become friends with their nervous system and develop psychological resilience. And then Lucia is given essentially a cute little fitness tracker to wear on her wrist that will monitor her stress load and sleep cycles. And her parents will be notified on their phones when she has a physiological stress response so they can discover her triggers and how best to help her. And these parents are filled with optimism and gratitude. Yeah, I loved that. So Dr. Delahook hopes that this is where we are headed that parents will be supported by diverse teams of professionals who are all really on the same page and they won't be blamed or second guess themselves when it comes to their parenting. Children won't be automatically labeled and individual differences will be appreciated because they provide us valuable information about how to support a child best. She says this type of thing is already happening at a place in New York called the Center for Discovery. It provides advanced, supportive, and holistic treatment for neurodiverse individuals, and they use that wearable technology that she was talking about that measures electrodermal activity, or EDA, and those give the professionals and parents data on how stress contributes to challenging behaviors that they see. This Center for Discovery partners with MIT and Harvard to conduct research to improve the quality of life for individuals with conditions like sleep disorders, gastrointestinal problems, seizure disorders, and anxiety. And it's just a really new way to support people with autism and other complex medical needs where they look below the surface and value behaviors because of the information they give us. Dr. Delahook says that linking physiological state with observable behaviors can teach us about the impact of stress on multiple areas of functioning, and hopefully we can move beyond our traditional understanding of pathology and labels and look at underlying processes rather than simple DSM diagnoses. And because the National Institutes of Mental Health is now encouraging research that moves beyond the constraints of DSM categories, she hopes we will get useful, practical information that will lead to more effective ways of monitoring and decreasing kids' stress loads. But that's her looking to the future, and she says there's a lot we can do now. So we are social beings with social brains, and attuned relationships are the way to healing. She has a quote from psychologist Louis Cozzolino that says, Our brains have evolved to be linked to and learn from other brains in the context of emotionally significant relationships. So our brains are highly adaptive, and when we value behaviors and support developmental processes through social engagement, behavioral challenges will decrease. But to do this, we have to shift a lot of strongly held beliefs. She emphasizes here that when we view behaviors as adaptive and value them because of the information they hold, they become a roadmap for helping a child. But we will have to dispel notions that there is top-down motivation and that behaviors are negative. So all those people who say, 
this kid's just seeking attention or he's doing this on purpose. And I just made some notes here. I think part of what we can do now is to advocate for this shift in our meetings with teachers and when we talk to parents. And for parents, we can really kind of give them hope and give them a new way to look at their child's behavior. And then for teachers, we can help them have more empathy for the child. Because in my experience, in situations where there's a really challenging child in a classroom, especially in a general ed class, it can be really easy for the teacher to view the behavior as the child basically trying to ruin their day. I forget which author said that, like a child isn't trying to ruin your day. Right. (laughs) Because our gen ed teachers are usually alone, right? They don't have help and they've got like 20 to 30 kids. And when you do have one or two or three challenging kids in your class, I'm sure they just feel like, can they get this kid out of my class? Can I get help? Can this kid just behave? You know, it's like, I can't teach. I can't do my job if I'm dealing with trying to work on this behavior all day. So this often becomes really tense between teachers and parents, which I wrote this down and then she brings that up later with the parent basically hearing all this negative stuff about their child every single day, a lot of blame and shame getting thrown at the parents. And then I feel like if we could be the person that comes in and says, well, what are these behaviors telling us? How much stress is this child experiencing? What are his triggers? How is the behavior adaptive? And then come up with a plan to support the child. It could really help to get everyone on the same page and hopefully ease some of the tension. I'm thinking of like one kid. I've got one kindergartner in mind where the teacher was just ripping her hair out. The kid was eloping constantly. And the mom was like, I cannot talk to that teacher without her telling me how horrible my son is. It was like a terrible situation. The teacher had like forgotten the way you should talk to a parent about their kid. (laughs) I feel like if we could just, I mean, I know we've talked about this before, but yeah, it's the perspective shift that needs to happen, right? So it's like, if we could start viewing these behaviors more as the clues that we need to kind of figure out what's going underneath as opposed to just like the problem that we need to fix, I think that would be so helpful. But we can start with us, you know, and I thought that Dr. Delahook didn't really harp on this as much as other authors we've read have kind of been like, it needs to start with us. We have to be the change. But I think that, you know, it only takes one person to approach things differently to really change a parent's perspective. Or she talks about this later on in the chapter to not feel so personally guilty and responsible, which is what a lot of parents feel like. That mom probably felt horrible, you know, the student you're talking about. Yeah, that mom was in tears all the time. And she was like a pretty tough mom, but why can't you guys keep my five-year-old in your classroom? Yeah. What's the behavior telling us? A kid eloping from a classroom where the kids are required to sit and start like reading and learning math and all this stuff all day when they're too young, probably. He wants out. Yeah. This is him communicating to us the way he knows how, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. When you think of it as like a threat detection system and he's escaping it like no get me out of here it's just like yeah okay so then she goes into negativity bias which is interesting she says we have a tendency to remember negative events more than positive or neutral ones and this is evolutionary because remembering a predator or threat is necessary for survival so we often overlook positive events in our lives and focus more on negative ones 
And when we're in charge of young children, this is like in hyperdrive because we have a burden of responsibility. So when a child has behaviors that put himself or others at risk, we're especially likely to focus on those negative behaviors because our priority is just to shift that behavior and protect the child as quickly as we can. I mean, going back to that teacher and the parent, the teacher just wants the, she wants the kid to be safe. She wants the other kids to be safe and to learn. And she's like, what's the answer? You know, what's the quickest way we can solve this? Right. Yeah, of course. The mom wants him safe. And she was probably like, why can't we get an adult with him all the time? Like an aide? Yeah. Yeah. So different priorities, but all coming from kind of the same place, wanting that safety. and Sure. Just different ways to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Parents and caregivers of children with challenging behaviors have higher levels of anxiety and hypervigilance. But having awareness can counteract the negativity bias. So once you demystify behaviors and you no longer fear them, then you'll judge yourself and the child's behaviors less. So I think she's especially talking about parents. But the same happens with me with, you know, if you were walking a kid. I was walking a kid back from speech one time and he pulled the fire alarm, you know. (laughs) And everybody starts exiting the rooms. And I'm like frantically trying to get to the phone to call and be like, this kid pulled it. Right. <laughs> and you feel that shame. I couldn't control that kid. He'd done it before. It wasn't his first rodeo. <laughs> <laughs> he, knew, he knew what was going to happen. Wow. And to be the person that was with him, you just feel like I'm not good at my job, you know? Yeah. And you are furious. Like you want to figure out a way to stop that from happening. Right. Okay. Mm. It's easier to engage in ways that support the child once you understand the root of the behavior, why the behavior is happening. And if parents can be more calm and less pressed into punitive action, they're in the best position to engage with and support their child. So parents of children who do have behavior challenges are under constant stress, and many of them feel that the underlying message they receive from others is that their child's behaviors are the result of their poor parenting. And then this is where she mentions that parents and providers are often at odds and IEPs because there is this desire to make things better combined with a really outdated approach to behavioral challenges. And we have to be careful and protect the labeled child and those around him. The next section is called hardwiring happiness. When we have good experiences, they build up over time and replace persistent negative thoughts and memories. She mentions Dr. Rick Hansen's acronym HEAL which stands for have a positive experience, enrich it, absorb it, and then link positive and negative material. And I totally forgot I downloaded his audiobook. It was available for free at the library. Nice. (laughs) Called, I think, Hardwiring Happiness. Yeah. Haven't checked it out yet. Haven't listened, but I'll let you know if it's good. Please. So we need to increase the positive experiences we have with children with no specific goal in mind. Just experience playful, spontaneous joy. And these experiences will build up over time and form memories and then kind of push out all the negative. She encourages parents to have more joyful experiences with their children so they feel more spontaneous gratitude for the child as he is. We don't Mm -hmm. want to send the message to children that they are improvement projects. We want to prioritize their developmental health through connected relationships. And she describes her daughter's kindergarten teacher who understood the power of connection for learning and greeted each child every day down on their level, shaking their hands or touching their arm and she says that teacher was teaching the children and soothing the parents through the therapeutic use of self. Yeah. And then she also describes a viral video of a teacher who greets his students every day Mm -hmm. with a unique choreographed handshake 
for each kid different. Like they have their special one that he remembers mm. all of them. And it reminded me of Marilee Springer, uh, who wrote our book from April, Social Emotional Learning in the Brain. Yeah. She talked about how important it is to give those personalized greetings to kids. And Dr. Delahook says, when a teacher gives these cues of interpersonal safety, it makes the children feel valued and special, telling them that they have a place in that. Actually, I might have just added this. This is from Marilee. I remember this. Telling them that they have a place in the classroom and that they're safe and Dr. Delahook says that creating those positive experiences at the moment the children need it most at the beginning of the day, which is such a stressful, you know, your school day is starting. That's why it matters so much. And it's not quick. They choreographed handshakes with every single kid in your class. It's going to take a while, but it matters so much to the kids. They're absorbing. He's taking time to let those experiences sink in and then form those memories. Those kids are going to remember that teacher forever. I thought that was so sweet. I know. Now I need to look up the video. I know. I was trying to think of if I've seen it before. And I think maybe I have. I don't. My sister just sent me some Instagram reels of this teacher who she's my sister's obsessed with her, but she does really cute rapping and like, name's Cool Miss P. Cool Miss P. Her videos are so good of how she teaches her kids. And the kids are all dancing and singing. And it is so good. Oh, yeah. Send it to me. I will. So children's brains are elastic and the experiences they have change them. We need to provide healthy experiences for both children and their parents. And she says, even if it's something you've been trained in, always consider whether a treatment approach is good for a child's brain before you implement it. Because a lot has changed since many of us went to school or learned about this stuff. So if you're doing something and you have a weird feeling about it, maybe don't do it. (laughs) And then for negativity bias in children, positive experiences we offer will counteract the negativity bias. Because kids who have behavior challenges receive messages that positive attention is kind of dependent on their behaviors which they don't necessarily have control of. And then this causes additional stress and they end up in a no-win cycle where their behaviors end up with negative consequences, like someone not paying attention to them, which increases their stress load, leading to more challenging behaviors. And then it just keeps going and going, snowballing. And she says quantity matters. So children need multiple positive experiences to change their brains. Start by shifting your priorities because academics are important but so is connecting with others through positive and joyful experiences. Slow down and model being more present. This will help you grow your own green pathway and decrease your stress and signal cues of safety to children. And then she ends with some ideas for slowing down and sharing positive enriching experiences with children. So her first one is to intentionally look at the child with warmth and connection. And she describes just sitting with a kid and looking into their eyes with calmness, warmth, and presence and focusing on the child's inherent goodness to counteract your hypervigilance and not assess or scrutinize (laughs) or teach or anticipate a meltdown. Just like sit and be present. And her next one is to ask the child what she would like to do with you. So instead of always kind of telling a kid what we're doing, ask them what they want to do or take a mindful walk outside Help the child take in the experience by walking really slow and intentionally and noticing things. She also says to make mealtimes opportunities for social connection. Don't just feed a child while doing something else like watching TV. It's really an opportunity to slow down and connect and find time to play and have fun together. Play should be an integral. Oh, I thought about this. That's a word. 
whenever I hear people say it integral, I'm like, how can you say it like that? Hard to know. Hard to know. How do you say it? Integral. You say integral. Am I the only one? That- but it does feel like integral. I don't know. It feels weird saying it. So I don't think I say it that integral. way. But I feel a little put on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> I hear people say integral. I never hear people say integral. And that's how I say it. So I might be totally wrong. I got to look it up. Play should be an integral and valued part of every child's day. Play decreases stress and anxiety and increases health and vitality. And then her next one is to move the body. So movement, especially in connection with others, boosts social and emotional development. And her last one is to listen to music together. Discover what types of music a child enjoys and then listen to it, move and dance with the music together. And then she finishes with a flower metaphor that stems from a quote. Did you hear what I did there? From Den Heyer that says, when a flower doesn't bloom, you fix the environment in which it grows, not the flower. And our traditional approaches are like misting a flower that is struggling to grow in parched soil, but we need to tend to the soil instead of just trying to fix the flower. We need to change the environment. Yeah, that's like a beautiful thing to think about. Yeah. And that's it. That's the end of the book. We really zipped through that thing. My goodness. Two months. I feel like we've been reading it forever. It was such a different way to look at behavior. And I just feel even I've already noticed in my interactions with kids since starting this, that I've really changed the way I view everything kids do. Yeah, I have to agree. I think it's hard with me being a mom. It's like a lot of these things I apply to my daughter because, you know, she's living with me. So it's easier to see. This book alone has really helped me understand some of her behavior and I feel like makes it easier to understand the behavior of other kids around us. So I loved it. I thought it was really the front of the book says paradigm shift and it does feel like that. Such a different way to look at behavior and also takes that pressure off of us to like solve it with traditional strategies, which don't always work as we know. So it's kind of nice to be offered a different solution, I think. Yeah, I feel like starting in grad school, we were always told, you know, rapport building, build rapport, build rapport, which essentially is part of this, like relationships before everything else. Like if you don't have that trusting, safe relationship with a kid, how are you going to support them in any way? How are you going to get them to do speech things? How are you going to, you know? So I feel like this book really gives us permission beyond just that traditional like building rapport is important. It gives us permission to do things on some days that might not even look like speech, you know, and I think that that's a a thing you fear like, oh, especially if people are watching you, if teachers are observing you with kids or parents are observing you with kids. I don't know, you feel that, oh, I have to be able to justify what I'm doing. I have to be able to link this to their goals. But like, maybe some days you just do things that are really putting the kid at ease, making them trust you, having fun together, you know, just kind of like what she said at the end, just sharing a joyful experience just to have it and not really thinking about like progress they're making or, you know. Yeah, it's like a little bit more permission to like relax and just connect, which I think is nice too, because I also feel like with When you're an SLP in the schools, there's so much pressure to like collect data, prove you're doing something, prove you're doing something effective. And I, because I've been part of several litigious cases, I feel like 
that's really my focus is I never want to leave a session with no data at all. Right. So it's kind of nice to have somebody say like connecting with a child can be really beneficial on a lot of different levels and not just the first couple weeks of school when you're building rapport, you know? Yeah. And I think that that can be something that especially with your most challenging I remember my one of my students who in the past was the most challenging to me. Right away when this student moved to my school, within one mm-hmm. or two weeks, I had a note in the office that said that that student's mom wanted to talk to me. Oh. And I took this approach of just killing her with kindness. Yeah. I was like, you know what? Let's not just talk on the phone. Come and talk to me in person. And I like really sat down and tried to get to know the child like, what does the child like? And, you know, I sat with, I met with the mom for maybe 30 minutes and then I let the mom observe a session and we stayed in really good contact the whole year. And I feel like that could be, especially with your most challenging kids to take that approach, not waiting for the mom to contact you, like reaching out right away and asking to meet with those parents so that you know the parent and you can tell them kind of your strategy and how this is going to be a part of it that like, you know, that building relationships is the foundation, like the most important step. And that some days, if the kid's having a really bad day, you might just play together or do something sensory, you know, like, and you can even refer them to this book, like to be able to recommend this book to parents who feel like at their wits end, like, just consider reading this book, and maybe it will change things for you. You know, I feel like it's such a what is that thing? A life preserver, life ring being thrown out and like, oh, they, I, this is what I needed, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I'm almost wondering, I kind of want to check out Brain Body Parenting by her mm-hmm. because that might be even more parent friendly. Yeah, sure. Like it might be the same type of information, but written more for parents. This is a little academic. Yeah, I know. A little. But even this one is not like, I think that parents could, could benefit from reading this a lot. Mm, yeah, definitely. Well, I feel very equipped to take on kids with (laughs) challenging behavior. Bring them on. (laughs) Let's do it, you guys. Let's do it. Well, I do have to say, uh, as we're wrapping up this book, you know, we have not gotten a lot of updates on Dr. Della Hook's medical status or what's going on with her, her condition. It sounds like she's still kind of hanging in there in the hospital And we just wanted to say we enjoyed her book so much and all of our thoughts are with her hoping for a speedy recovery. So thank you, Dr. Delahook, for your work and for contributing this beautiful book to all of us people who need it. And we hope that she makes a full recovery. Yeah. So we wanted to announce our next book for the months of November and December. We will be finishing out the year with Uniquely Human, A Different Way of Seeing Autism by Dr. Barry Prezant. I have read most of this book in the past, maybe the whole thing, but long, long ago, whenever it came out, but I haven't read it in a long time. It really changed a lot for me when I was working with, you know, the majority of the kids I worked with had autism. And this book helped me so much to change the way I viewed, kind of like, the way Beyond Behaviors does, but it really looks at motivation and individual differences. And I just, I think it's a fabulous book. So I'm excited to really, really dig into it 
and finish it if I haven't in the past. <laughs> Yay. Well, me too. I've never read it before, but I'm really excited to, and I've heard great things about it. So I'm looking forward to it. Okay. Well, if you are listening to this on October 31st, have a wonderful Halloween. We hope you do. Um, and we'll see you next time. Yep. We'll see you in November. Bye, Adrian. Bye, Laura. At the SLP Book Club, our mission is to learn, grow, and connect with other SLPs and educators. If you love what we're doing, the best way to support the podcast is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen. This helps other SLPs find the show so our community can grow even stronger. We appreciate you so much and hope you keep listening and reading along with us.